Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Thomas lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday, and I'll be glad to get your calls. But I want to pose this question to you. When do you suppose could we get Joe Biden to stop inviting attacks on America and its assets and its allies and its shipping just about everywhere on this planet? I think this is a president who, far from bringing an end to wars, that was the last president, President Donald Trump, the greatest president of the 21st century so far. Joe Biden? Well, Joe Biden is worse than even Jimmy Carter was. But Joe Biden keeps inviting these attacks to come on us, and he doesn't do anything that would actually push back. He is a president of weakness, and he projects weakness just about everywhere. I would expect you to expect me to make the case for that, and I'll do just that. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on this Wednesday, and if you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you disagree with me, Unlike a lot of places, but CNN, MSNBC, and most talk shows, we put naysayers to the head of the line if you decide to call in. If you disagree with me, you're more than welcome. You're going to go first. You can also send me an email, talk at LarsLarson.com, and I try to answer all of them. And then, of course, we've got our X poll. Used to be called the Twitter poll. Now it's the X poll. Should the Supreme Court cut back the federal government's regulatory powers? Yes, I'm talking about the deep state. Now, much of the media would have you believe, and a lot of Democrat politicians and even some Republicans would say, oh, there's no such thing as the deep state. Well, guess what? I think we're going to see it happen. And let me tell you why I say that. You can't always predict what the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do. But today, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments on a case that challenges what is known as the Chevron Doctrine. And yes, it did involve Chevron USA. About 40 years ago, 1984, the Supreme Court uh, heard a critical case, and it was the Chevron case. And here's what they decided. If the Congress creates an agency, for example, the EPA or the Department of Education, completely worthless, but there it is. If they create that agency, and then when the agency goes out and does crazy things, but they say, but we were empowered by Congress to be created, so therefore... Once you've created the EPA or the DOE or the Department of Education or any other federal agency, once they've been created, the Chevron Doctrine, this thing from 40 years ago, the courts decided way back then, if somebody challenges the authority of that bureaucracy to make whatever rules it wants to make, the bureaucracy is almost always right. That's what the Chevron Doctrine was in non-legal terms. I mean, I know a lawyer could probably charge you a couple of thousand bucks for it and define it much more carefully than that. But basically, they assume that federal agencies are always right. And anybody who doesn't like the crazy regulations they write up, they're probably wrong in almost all cases. That is the Chevron Doctrine. Well, when the Supreme Court justices, the nine today, you know, blissfully six conservatives and only three liberal nitwits on the court. Uh, when they heard the arguments, 
it seems from the questions they were asking, and that's usually the best way to tell whether or not the Supreme Court is going to one direction or another, they seem to be leaning in the direction of saying, let's pull back what these federal agencies are doing. And what's really crazy is the case that they agreed to hear is one that tells you how lunatic some of these federal agencies can be. So you've got agencies that regulate fishing off America's shores. And what they decided was, we need to keep track of what all these fishermen are catching and see if they're catching too much of one thing or another, one kind of fish or another. And and whether or not there's bycatch, that's when you're fishing for one thing and you happen to catch something else, we've got to have monitors on all those boats. And we'd like to have monitors on all of the boats, except the federal agency said, we don't have the money to pay for people to go out and just sit and watch these fishermen fish and keep a record of it. So... We're going to insist on these fishing monitors, and then we're going to tell the fishermen, you have to pay the tab. And in many cases, the tab was going to come to seven or eight or nine hundred dollars for every single trip. And a lot of the fishermen stood up and said, number one, you, the federal agency, don't have the authority to just say, we're going to do this and you have to pay for it. You didn't get that authority from the U.S. Congress. Uh, a number two, In many cases, the amount of money that fishermen would pay uh, for having the monitor on board is more than his entire profit for the fishing trip that he takes. I mean, after you paid for the fuel, the diesel, you paid for the boat, you paid for your crew and all the other costs of running a fishing operation, um, the government comes in and says, we're going to put a monitor on your boat. His only job or her only job is to watch what you catch. And then we're going to send you the bill. And the bill will often be more money than you made for the entire day. We've just turned you into a nonprofit fishing operation. That's what's being contested in this case. They're saying the Chevron doctrine, assuming that this federal fishing agency that says you have to put a monitor on board and uh, and you're going to pay the tab, they're wrong. Chevron is wrong, and it sounds like the U.S. Supreme Court might just throw it up. In any case, you can find the X poll. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on X, also on our website at LarsLarson.com, and brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Uh, AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in, so I joined a long, long time ago. You can, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, we told you that Facebook is still accepting ad advertising, according to Richard Grinnell, the former director of national intelligence under Trump. He says Facebook's taking ads for human trafficking by Mexican coyotes. And should Facebook face some prosecution for doing that? 96% of you agreed with me and said yes. Only 4% of you said no. And those, of course, are the naysayers that I just love to talk uh, talk about and talk to. Um, Let me tell you more about why I think Joe Biden is inviting attacks on his own country. Today, well, this week, we find out that the Biden administration is going to reverse its position on Houthi terrorists. Some of the more liberal media out there called them the Houthi rebels. They are Houthi terrorists in the Middle East. And what have they been doing? They've been attacking commercial shipping. They've been attacking uh, United States military ships, uh, primarily uh, in the in the Red Sea. So Joe Biden has said, well, we have to declare that these folks are terrorists. You know what's crazy about that? Most of the media won't tell you about it. Donald Trump had already declared the Houthi terrorists were terrorists. 
And then when Joe Biden came in, he was so hell-bent on saying everything Trump did was wrong and I'm going to reverse it. Whether it was oil, uh, whether it was the, the border, whether it was the wall, everything Trump did was wrong. And yet Joe Biden is over and over again having to admit, no, it turns out Trump was right. And this is the latest example of that. Joe Biden invited attacks on this country generically with his disastrous and deadly evacuation of Afghanistan that put billions of dollars of weapons in the hands of terrorists. That was an invitation plus the weakness that we showed by pulling out and evacuating Afghanistan in a way that got Americans killed. Joe Biden brings trouble on America rather than solving our problems and protecting our country. Coming up in a moment, they've got a brand new gift for the labor unions coming from the White House, a brand new rule that blurs the lines between contractors and employees. We'll talk about that coming up next. We... A message from Lars. I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet. Please be patient. I'll get to you shortly. Who's next? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to get your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. I guess I could say that I have kind of a dog in the fight. Jim Burling may know that I, I always try and disclose if I have a bias. In this case, throughout my career, I've occasionally freelanced pro, you know, various projects and things like that. I mean, I, I've also been a W-2 employee most of my life, but I've always held anywhere from two to five jobs at any given time. Today, it's only two. Uh, but, but Jim, I always try and tell my audience if I have something in my background that might make me, uh, you know, biased in one way or another. But when I hear that the Biden Department of Labor wants to reclassify independent contractors and force them to become employees and force the companies they work for to employ them as W-2 employees, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me, especially since it's not being done because the employee or the employer wants to do it. It's because the Biden Labor Department wants it. Can you help my audience understand what they're doing here? Yeah, absolutely. So for many, many years under the Fair Labor Standards Act, there was a really ambiguous rule about who was an independent contractor and who was an employee. And that made it really hard, especially for freelancers, to to do the work. And, And we're representing a series of writers here that would write articles and they would freelance these articles. They'd be paid by the page or by the word or by the job they were doing. And they are not considered or were not considered to be employees. And they didn't want that because a lot of the publications, they just want to buy the publications. They don't have to have a whole new W-2 thing. And they're not going to they're not going to hire these people if they have to be considered as employees. So for years and years, there's a really vague and ambiguous standard. It was kind of a black box. You put a whole bunch of different factors, seven factors, more factors, less factors, And then the Department of Labor would pull out and decide on a case-by-case basis whether you're a freelancer or whether you're an employee whenever they started to look into it. So the Trump administration, uh, at the very end of its, uh, of its first, of the first four years, uh, had a very simplified regulation that put into place that really clarified things. They said, look, we're going to look at two core factors. One, the nature and degree of the individual's control over the work, and yep. two, the individual's opportunity for profit or loss. 
And those are going to be the primary factors we look at. And a lot of freelancers are really happy about that. A lot of them, a lot of employers were happy about that because it removed a lot of the ambiguity and you knew what, what was, who was an independent contractor and who wasn't. But that's not good enough for the Biden Department of Labor. Uh, they wanted to have maximum ambiguity so they could have maximum power when they would bring actions against people saying, well, look, the standards are vague and we get to interpret them. And of course, courts get to defer to us and you lose. Well, and in fact, an awful lot of these people, both parties are happy with the arrangement. So this is what's really bizarre. The freelancer is happy because it gives him or her a lot of flexibility. The employer is happy uh, because it gives them a lot of flexibility. And I guess to those people who say, well, I don't want to be a freelancer anymore. I want to be a W-2 employee. I want to get paid a certain amount just for showing up. And uh, and I want that arrangement. That arrangement is av- is available for almost all of these people. They may have to go to work for someone else, but they say, if you don't like the arrangement, go to work for a different company if you want. But what about the people who still want to be freelancers? They're going to be forced out of this? Well, you know, the what's underlying this dispute, and we saw this first in California when the state of California went against freelancers, people that were driving Uber vehicles and things of that nature, uh, and also a lot of journalists as well were caught up in the trap, is because if you have freelancers, independent contractors, well, wage and labor laws don't apply to them. But more importantly, they're harder to unionize if you're a freelancer. Ah. So the Department of Labor really wants to have complete control and uh and, and unions are very much in favor of limiting the ability of people to freelance. If you can be an employee, uh, it's much easier to have uh, wage and price controls, I mean, wage controls put on you and to uh, be available for unionization. Well, and Jim, uh, you know, California was successful in basically wiping out the gig economy, wasn't it? Haven't they already done this? It's a, it's a done deal there? It was a done deal, and there was an initiative to overturn that. The initiative was quite successful. The voters overturned what happened in California, and now California is trying to get at the same thing by different ways, basically override the will of the people. So So in other words, they're going to tell the voters it doesn't matter what you want, it's, it's what the government wants, right? Oh, of course. I mean, the voters are just pesky people. you got to go to them every few years (laughs) to keep what your job, but, you know, we can ignore them in the meantime. Well, and Jim, I got to tell you, the last place in America I would have expected was California. Uh, you know, and I won't belabor you with a long story, but the short story is I used to work in television, and occasionally we'd be sent to Los Angeles to cover things like OJ's civil trial or OJ's criminal trial and things like that. And I'd interact with some of my, you know, coworkers or sister employees in the company in, who worked in Los Angeles. And I said, How long have you been working here? And they say, Oh, I'm on per diem. I said, What's that? And they said, and these were reporters and photographers and producers and people like that. And they say, I just come to work and I get paid a daily rate. And they give me a three, four hundred dollars a month, a day. Uh, but they had to take care of their own health insurance and vacation was up to them. In other words, you got paid a certain amount of money, but all the other stuff was up to you. And these people were happy with it because, like everybody else in Los Angeles, they were all budding producers, directors, photographers who wanted to work in Hollywood. So they could go to the TV station and work as a reporter, a photographer, a producer for 40 days in a row. 
You know, no overtime, just you get the same pay for 40 days. And then they could take three months off and go work on a film project because that was their ultimate dream. And if you wipe that out and say you can't be an independent contractor on per diem anymore, then all those people who want to work at one job to make their living, but they aspire to be the next Steven Spielberg or something or George Lucas, all of a sudden you take all of that away. So California seemed like the least uh, the least likely place for that kind of stuff to be a winner. Yeah, but in California we have adopted so much of the progressive zeitgeist that uh, the idea that you can make a choice over how you're going to control your life seems to be somewhat passe among many people in this state. And a lot of the freelancers or people who are formerly freelancers that now have to be considered employees are not happy about that. Uh, but the choice has been taken away because they're obviously, Lars, we know, there are people in government who know much better than we do what's good for us. <laughs> well, and see, I mean, sometimes I have a tough time even selling this to some of my listeners who will call in and say, no, no, we have to protect people. I said, how do you, why do you assume that the government, state government, federal government, or, or state or local government, or, or federal government knows better what you want to do? Shouldn't you be able to say, I have skills and talents, I want to sell them to somebody? And the government comes in and says, we will tell you under what circumstances you are allowed to sell your skills and talents to an employer. And you say, why are you involved at all? Well, we're protecting you. You're going to protect me right out of my opportunities that I would have otherwise? That's outrageous. Yeah, we should all have the opportunity to make our own mistakes in our own lives. And we learn from those mistakes. Say, say being a freelancer wasn't the right thing for me. Okay, I can get a regular job then. But I get to make mistakes, not some government bureaucrat. Yeah, and in that case, you get to have that regular job where you show up at 8 and you leave at 5 and everything is defined. And if you want any kind of freedom or flexibility, hey, can I take three weeks off? No. You have to be here every day. You want to take a week off, you can take vacation. Otherwise, you're locked up. You're you're working for us, and you're to be here every single day, whether we need you or not. None of that stuff makes sense. Uh, I'd really love to see this fight for freelancers organization succeed. Jim, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. My pleasure, Lars. That is Jim Burling, who's vice president of legal affairs for the Pacific Legal Foundation. I'll be glad to get your phone calls and emails in the next segment. And by the way, the Biden administration is now spinning a tragic tale at the border. But their own DOJ files show a very different story. Is the White House actually trying to run a false narrative and undercut the very people who are guarding America's border? I'm going to tell you the details on that coming up in a moment. And then your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X, check out our Instagram feed, and you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Looking for more in this world? Now, this musical message to anyone who wants to indoctrinate our school children. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Welcome back 
to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a good, it's a great Wednesday as far as I'm concerned. And if you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. I'll get to Joe Biden and the new uh, false narrative that they're pushing that accuses Border Patrol agents of not rescuing three illegal aliens who drowned at our southern border. But first, I want to get to your calls. Let's go first to Dalton. Hey, Dalton, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Uh, Honestly, sir, I wanted to applaud you for your civility and the uh, conversation you had with Paul earlier. Oh, about transgender and kidnapping people's uh, children and then uh, allowing them to yeah. go through so-called gender-affirming care where they're, m- you know, medically mutilated. Uh, and uh, it just... Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think, personally, he was more than a little out of line, especially oh. considering he was getting upset with the fact that you were proving him wrong. <laughs> Well, that happens a lot to naysayers, but I'm okay with that. I'm, I, you know, if they want to get, if people get excited, do you know, I think, I think the person who wins an argument is usually the person who wins it on the facts and not based on getting the angriest or yelling and shouting. Um, there are times I yell and shout, but, but I just get excited. So, but, well, you know, it, to me, it boils down to the fact that you're right or, excuse me, you're factually correct, and you're also keeping the calm head, which is part of what I absolutely adore about you, sir. Well, I I appreciate the kind words. Let me ask you a question, because this is a mystery for me, Dalton. We have all over America right now, we have thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of kids who may be mutilated, chemically mutilated, surgically mutilated, in the name of what they... They, they use that euphemism, gender-affirming care. You know, what they mean is a boy comes to them and says, listen, I, I'm troubled, I'm conflicted about who I am, I think I'm actually a girl. And they say, okay, you're a child, you're not 18, you can't make most of the decisions that adults are allowed to make in this society, but we'll let you start taking chemicals that will chemically castrate you. And then later on, we'll physically do that as well to affirm your true gender. This is the nonsense they're selling. And it's making last year $2.2 billion taken in by the transgender care uh, industry. And it's become an industry. It's headed for $5 billion in the next few years. Have you figured out why more parents are not standing and grandparents are not standing up and objecting loudly to what's being done to kids? You know, honestly, I am a parent, and heaven forbid, you know, I might be a grandparent soon, depending on the kid. But Congrats. You know, I, I'm i sorry, I don't understand it. I never have. Well, see, and, and Dalton, even if you're reading in the paper, you're hearing on a radio show like mine about kids who've transitioned, so-called, and then they've decided, I don't like this, it's not fixing my problems, make me back the way I was, and they're told by the medical community, I'm sorry, we can't put you entirely back, uh, detransition you. We can't put it back the way it was. That when you see that, you, and, and I know most parents, when they hear about something horrible that's happened to a child, they say, yeah, but that's never going to happen to my child. They may not say it out loud, but in their heart, 
If you ask them, do you think that would ever happen to your son or daughter? Oh, no, my kids are too sensible. Well, the fact is there are an awful lot of parents who get caught unawares. And the reason that you're seeing laws passed in America that actually allow social workers, government workers, teachers, counselors, people like that, to make these decisions over the objections and without the informed consent of an adult, a parent, the reason those laws are passing is because a lot of parents do object to it. And so they're saying, well, then we have to make a law that says the parents don't have anything to say about it. I would think that when parents see that, they'd say, whether my kid goes that direction or not, you have no business getting in the way in the relationship between me as a parent and that child, my son or daughter. And when they see it happening to other people's kids, I hope a lot of parents are asking themselves, if that ever happened to my kid, would I let them do that to my son or daughter? And I know there are some parents. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Dalton. Oh, no, Lars, I'm sorry. Um, Can can I just interject for a moment? Because I I think I might be able to put this in layman's terms. I'm a blue collar worker. I have been all my life. Like, but. Let's, let's just put it in layman's terms. So, long story short, my kids aren't, aren't able to get a tattoo before a certain age. Right. They're not able to buy cigarettes before a certain age. Can't sign a they're contract before a certain age. They're not allowed to be the military age. before a certain age. Yep. And they're not allowed to buy alcohol before a certain age. So, why are they able to do this? Before that age, if they're not able to make any of those choices legally throughout the entire United States. Yep. But they're allowed to do that without their parents' consent. But they can't even get a vaccination without their parents' consent. Like, no, they can't. I'm sorry. Well, there, and there, Dalton, there's a whole... the, there was a word in there the FCC doesn't approve of. So dump, dump, dump. So, sorry about yeah, Dump. Uh, sorry about that. I just heard a... <laughs> I I hate to say this, folks. I mean, I don't like that the FCC regulates this. I don't use that kind of language for a reason. But when somebody drops a a swear word on the air, we got to make sure it goes away. So Joel made sure it goes away. Let me get back to Joe Biden, though, because I think this may remind you of that situation a few years ago under Joe Biden, where there were border agents that were doing their job trying to hold back the flood of illegal aliens. And they were on horseback. And there is a technique that they that they use involving using the reins and they use it uh, they they're sending signals to the horse uh they're being they're doing their jobs and somebody caught a picture of it a photographer for a news organization and you had every every idiot out there accusing the border patrol agents of whipping illegal aliens which wasn't true and they were eventually exonerated well guess what i think it's happening again uh, Daily Wire has the story. A Biden administration claim that the state of Texas prevented federal border agents from rescuing three illegal aliens who ended up drowning in the Rio Grande River on our southern border has completely been undermined by its own Department of Justice. The allegation from Biden's Department of Homeland Security says that border agents responding to a distress call from the Mexican government were physically barred by Texas officials from entering the area. And the DHS spokesman, the Homeland Security, said that the call to Texas was cruel, dangerous, and inhumane. 
But according to the administration's own accounting of the incident by the DOJ, makes it clear the allegations against Texas were false. The DOJ states at 9 p.m., the Mexican government informed Border Patrol that three illegal aliens, two children and a woman, had drowned at 8 p.m. Border Patrol informed the Texas Military Department of the drowning. The allegation came days after the state of Texas took control of a park at Eagle Pass, we've talked about it, Shelby Park, that was previously used by members of the Border Patrol to process illegal aliens. The takeover is part of an ongoing feud between Texas and the federal government. And why is there a feud? Because the Biden administration wants to let millions of illegal aliens into the country. They've already succeeded in letting about 10 million into the country. And Texas is saying, no, you're not going to do this. It has a tremendously bad effect on the state of Texas. So they pass laws and they put people to work to close a border that Joe Biden refuses to close. And now Joe Biden's Department of Homeland Security is trying to suggest that Texas officials made it possible for three illegal aliens to drown in the river? Completely wrong, but pretty typical of the Joe Biden administration. Back in a moment, uh, we got to talk about electric vehicles and a little game they've been playing. Calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. There's a bit of gaming of the system when it comes to electric vehicles, except this is more than just a little bit. And I want to describe it to you. I'm hoping to talk to Jimmy Condi, who's an attorney. Uh, that wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal today. It is so nefarious, you almost can't believe it. But you understand that when you hear people sing the praises of EVs, electric vehicles, uh, they'll say, why, my goodness, they're so very, very efficient. Well, it turns out they're not all that efficient. Jimmy Condi joins me now, who's an attorney with Boyd and Gray PLLC in Washington, D.C. Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Lars. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having me. I was just, uh, thank you for that. I was just telling uh, my audience, I said, you hear people saying, wow, these electric vehicles, they're so very, very efficient. Except you point out there's been a game going on where, well, let me put it this way. Let's start with an electric vehicle everybody's familiar with, the Tesla. And you point out if they took that Tesla, the Model Y, and they brought it in and had it tested probably on a dynamometer the way they do all other cars for establishing what is their average miles per gallon in city, miles per gallon in highway. They would get a reading of about 65 miles per gallon equivalent, even though it's using electricity instead of gas. Is that right? That's correct, Lars. Yeah. Now, how is it then that they managed to say, but the Tesla Model Y actually gets the equivalent of 430 miles per gallon and gets special subsidies because it's getting six and a half times as much mileage. Uh, how did they get to that number? Oh, well, uh, it's essentially just a cheat code uh, form of car- corporate welfare for manufacturers. Uh, the story behind that is uh, very strange. So... Uh, they figured that, so that the whole thing started with a subsidy for, uh, cars that use ethanol. Uh, mm-hmm. they use 85% ethanol, right? Yep. And so, uh, 85% ethanol, that means you're using 15% gasoline. Yep. And so they said, well, those cars get to divide their efficiency by, uh, 0.15. And if you do the math, that just happens to be 
666%, the number of the beast. Uh, that might be just a coincidence, but uh, <laughs> I think that's a, I'll let your that's an interesting decide. coincidence. <laughs> yeah, it is. And so the Department of Energy, during the final days of the Clinton administration, as uh, the first EV mandate California adopted was imploding, had the brilliant idea of saying, well, uh, Congress has told us we, we should do this for uh, cars that use ethanol. Why don't we just do it also for electric vehicles? Even though the statute tells them that the they can't do it, that they have to rely, they have to use realistic energy equivalent numbers when they're measuring the the uh, efficiency of electric cars. So this is how this number was put into the the what the code of federal regulations. But but here's the thing, Lars, it's not even in the code of federal regulations. It's buried in an equation in the Code of Federal Regulations. And to find it, you have to, you actually have to go down to uh, a publication of the Federal Register uh, and to, 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 to put it precisely, to volume 65 of page 36,987. That's where that number is. <laughs> and nobody in Washington knew about this. That's Probably the biggest scandal. Pa- page 36,000 some odd, and you find this number, and they just magically multiply the actual equivalent mileage, if they're trying to ca- compare apples to apples, uh, of 65 miles per gallon model or uh, energy equivalents for a Model uh, Y Tesla, all of a sudden becomes 430 miles per gallon. And they say, and then we'll just assign the subsidies based on a on a car that gets 430 miles per gallon. That's why they wanted that number to be that uh, to be 430 is because then you can just shovel out subsidies to the thing all day long. Right. Correct. Yeah. So it's a, a part of the corporate welfare scandal for EVs that's not really well understood, at least until recently is that there's all these regulatory credits. So when you, whenever you exceed the standards for efficiency, you get credits, right? It's like a form of an indulgence that you receive yep. from the government. <laughs> and you can trade that uh, with other manufacturers that are technological laggards, so to speak. So, uh, you know, Stellantis maybe. And uh, you can make a lot of money trading these credits. But here's the, here's another thing. Nobody really knows how much money is being made with these credits because the prices are unknown. Uh, they're not traded in open markets. And, you know, members of Congress don't know how much uh, so, these are worth. But J- Jim, they're Jimmy, probably worth billions. L- yeah. Let me ask, yeah, probably, let me ask you this. Is this the way it works? So I make an electric car. It doesn't really get 430 miles per gallon. But then I get all these credits. And then I can go off to other car companies, maybe that make gasoline or diesel cars, and say, hey, you need to buy some credits to offset the terrible mileage of your cars. You can buy them from me, and we can do it in a way that the public never sees the sale of those credits. And and they're selling, or they could sell them to other industries, I guess, because these are all just energy efficiency credits. They get a chance to sell them. The public never knows, but the public is going to pay the bill, Right. Correct. Yeah. So it's a way of socializing the costs and privatizing the benefits, right? So uh, Tesla gets the benefit and all the purchasers of internal combustion cars pay for it, but they don't really know they're paying for their neighbor's Tesla. That's the trick here. 
Unbelievable, because all of these other car companies, I've always wondered, they have this thing called corporate average fuel economy. So if uh, Ford, for example, wants to make pickup trucks, it gets 17 or 18 miles per gallon. And you say, but our cafe number is supposed to be 30 or 35. How do you get from 17 to 35? You buy credits. That's why they're doing it. Is that right? That's exactly why they're doing it. That's exactly right, Lars. Is there any way to get this stopped? To make the electric cars you know, actually reflect what they actually do, 65 miles per gallon. Yeah, so there's actually a lot of problems with with the testing itself beyond this, but the government could start by, you know, pulling the plug on this cheat code. And to to the government's credit, the Department of Energy has actually said they're going to pull the plug on the cheat code uh, and the auto industry has absolutely panicked about this because they know that they're not going to be able to comply with the rules they have told the administration they're going to comply with if if this number, you know, this fake cheat code is pulled out of the, the regulations. Jimmy, so, I'm up against a, a break, a hard break, but Jimmy Condi is an attorney with Borden Gray back in D.C. You can read the whole piece that he and his law partner, Michael uh, Bushbacher, wrote. In the Wall Street Journal, we'll put the link up on my website and all the rest of that. Jimmy, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Take care now. That's Jimmy Condi. Can you believe this? A cheat. And it's all based on the number 666. There are no coincidences. you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Rack our truck hit a road. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Now, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails, and I'll do that in just a moment. First, let me tell you what's coming up. Do concealed carry laws increase or reduce gun violence? I don't like using the term gun violence, but it's a term of art that's used by the anti-gunners in America. I'm going to give you some new details on that. They're going to arm you with some information you can share with your liberal friends who don't believe in guns. We've got that on the agenda. And we've got our Twitter poll, or X poll, as we're now calling it. Should the Supreme Court cut back the federal government's regulatory powers? Uh, They heard the arguments today in a case that might just completely upend what's known as the Chevron Doctrine, which is the federal bureaucracy is almost always right doctrine that's been in place for 40 years, since 1984. You can find today's X poll at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. I'd say, yeah, the Supreme Court should cut the deep state bureaucracy back hard and tell them you're not authorized to do anything that the Congress didn't give you explicit permission to do. 
Today's X-Poll is brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in and I joined a long time ago. You should join too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. A shout out to our friends in Montrose, Colorado, who listen to Great Talk Radio on KUBC. That's AM 580 in Montrose. And you can find my show there Monday through Friday. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And naysayers go to the head of the line, by the way, and emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let's go first to Alabama and talk to Grant. Hey, Grant, welcome to the program. What's on your mind tonight? Hello. Um, I have a few questions. I have one question for my economics class. Okay. I'll do my best. Yes, sir. Um, it says, in your opinion, what are the most pressing economic issues that the younger generation should be aware of, and how can we effectively engage with them? I think liberty in America and freedom from government uh, overreach is a huge economic issue because your ability to leave school and go out and start a business or run a business or work for a business is being severely impeded by the, the current federal government. Federal government About 10% of every dollar in America, the gross domestic product of America, goes to regulation. And that number's been growing dramatically. So that's one of the big issues. Second big issue is the amount of government debt. Because our government is now borrowing a stratospheric amount of money. And uh, when the government borrows money, they line up first at the bank. And they say, we want to borrow money. When they borrow a large amount of money, it tends to drive up the price of you borrowing money, whether you want to start a business or buy a house, uh, those are two major issues that I'd throw out just off the cuff. Yes, sir. Anything else? And then, yes, sir. I had one more question. Sure. It said, as a high school student, what role can I play in promoting economic literacy and awareness within my school or community? Hmm. That's an interesting one because I'm trying to think of something specific you could do so I could give you a good answer. Uh, economic literacy. Um, I don't know. Manage a credit card for a year. Uh, give that a try. Because most people tell you to stay away from credit. I think it's smarter to use it as a tool and understand how it can be used, how it can be abused, and how you can find yourself trapped by being in debt. But just avoiding it altogether is not a good idea. Uh, it's like almost anything else, Grant. I mean, I carry a pocket knife every day. I have since I was a kid. And I find it incredibly useful. But if I didn't carry a knife, if I didn't use a knife on a regular basis, how often do you think I'd cut my fingers? Because I've certainly done that. But on the other hand, if you use it, if you use a tool all the time, but you, you understand how to use it sensibly, how not to get hurt by it, uh, that might be a way to, to generate some econo- economic literacy. That and just read as much, read till your eyes fall out. Yes, sir. Well, good luck with that. I hope that helps out. Let's go to Ben in Virginia. Hey, Ben, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Yes, sir. I just wanted to ask your opinion on um, the current state of the, I guess, Democrat Party. <laughs> um, to me, to me, they're turning into the National Socialist Party because they're trying to control what you do, trying to control what you see on TV. Um, Antifa and BLM are running around, starting riots, you know, destroying buildings, same thing the SS used to do. Yep. I would hate to know that, you know, any of my great-grandfathers or grandfathers or 
in people who fought in World War II what they would think of us today. You know, I'm, I just want to get your opinion on no, that. No, I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the Democrats really are, they're using brown shirt tactics. They've got their enforcers out there, uh, BLM, Antifa, and whatever other groups. Now you've got the pro-Palestine groups. But basically, if you take a look at the political nature of the pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas terrorist uh, groups in America and the Antifa and the BLM, there isn't about a dime's worth of difference between any any one of those three. And it's funny because one of the uh, most common epithets that's thrown uh, by the left, you know, by the Joy Reeds, you know, or the uh, Whoopi Goldbergs of the world is, well, he's a Nazi. They apparently don't understand the Nazi party was the National Socialist Party. And that really describes what the Democrats are trying to be in America today. They would like a compliant, dependent class of citizen that they can control. Independent citizens are bad news for the Democrat Party. Compliant, dependent citizens, ones who say, well, my job is likely to come from the government or my check is likely to come from the government. My kid gets fed breakfast and lunch at school by the government, is told what to believe by the government. Everything goes back to the government. That, to me, is 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 a hallmark of socialism. And, Ben, what most people don't even try, and I should have told this to the young man who called in uh, uh, about his economics lesson, is this. Name me a successful socialist economy on planet Earth. Now, I know there are people who say, well, that, that would be, uh, you know, northern Europe. You know, it'd be uh, Sweden or Norway. Uh, uh, and, and I say, no, those are capitalist economies. They have to have a big welfare state. You know, they got a lot of government benefits, but they're capitalists. That's the only way you can afford to be a socialist is to have strong capitalism underneath it and have big welfare state. You want to see a socialist economy? Take a look at the disaster that is Venezuela. Take a look at the economic disaster that is Cuba. Uh, and if you say, well, what about China? China's a major capitalist operator. They may be a communist society as far as politics go, but the way they're making all their money is capitalism. They make stuff and they sell it. So the communism comes on top of that. But if you take a look at where, where we go after socialism, socialism inevitably leads to communism. And both of them are done at the point of a gun. And I've had people challenge me on that and say, well, Lars, what do you mean point of a gun? I say, well, they'll start soft. It'll be the government saying, we'll pay off your student loans. We'll give you food stamps. We'll give you welfare in Section 8. We'll subsidize your housing. We'll subsidize your electric cars. The only way to make that happen at some point is to say, we are going to take from this group and give it to that group because we like them better politically. And when they come to take your stuff, eventually they always do it at the point of a gun. Ben, thanks for the call. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Warning to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll disclose my dog in the fight if I have one. I haven't taken the mRNA jab, uh, the thing they call a vaccine that didn't really act like a vaccine. So that was my decision. I don't tell other people what to do. Uh, the government likes to do that, but I don't like to do that. I did want to talk to Lee Fang, who's an independent journalist based in San Francisco, who writes on an investigative newsletter on Substack at LeeFang.com. Welcome to the program. Hey, Lars. Thanks so much for having me. I, this stuff that you've been following, and I really appreciate your reporting on this, in following all these major pharma companies, some of them made tens of billions of dollars on the so-called vaccine. Others, well, Moderna is having a tough time right now, aren't they? And, and there may be a lesson in that. Yeah, that's right. You know, some of the other pharma companies that produced approved vaccines, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, you know, these are big, well-established pharmaceutical companies. They've got a lot of products. Moderna is very special. Moderna has never produced an approved uh, pharmaceutical product. The mRNA COVID vaccine, that's their very first product. Uh, they're very reliant on this uh, one vaccine. It, you know, it, it jetted them off to a $100 billion valuation. It minted five new billionaires just from the Moderna stock price alone. And now uh, their fortunes are turning as less people are receiving the vaccine, less people are interested in the booster. Uh, they're really struggling uh, to maintain their, their stock price and, and, and their profits. Well, and in fact, I wonder what your read is on this, because I watch it from a distance and I have to watch a lot of different subjects. So it's, I don't just focus on this. But I've noticed that there was a big push late last year saying, oh, you got to get all your kids vaccinated. And then I stopped hearing about the story largely altogether. And I got the impression that an awful lot of parents, and you would expect them to make the safest decision for their kids, have said, I'm not going to get the boosters for my kids, or I'm not going to get my, my kid vaccinated with the mRNA shot at all. Am I right in that impression? Yeah, you know, I got the same impression. I think it's partially because the fear tactics are wearing off. There's never been strong, compelling evidence for childhood vaccinations. We, we haven't seen the studies. You know, big NIH study last year showing essentially zero um, COVID deaths, you know, no real uh, benefit for the COVID, the COVID vaccine for children, uh, but but some side effects. So, so, you know, you have to weigh any kind of medical intervention. There are pluses and minuses. You know, if you're an elderly person or someone immunocompromised, um, the evidence suggests maybe you should be vaccinated, but for children, the evidence is not there. And I think after several years of fear-mongering of, of politicians and public policy leaders demanding these vaccinations for children without the evidence, I think parents are just fed up and, and it's just not working anymore. Well, and the other piece to this, and I'd like you to comment on this, because, again, I'm the guy who doesn't follow this one exclusively. You've done fantastic reporting on it. But as recently as 21, in the, in the middle of 21, Joe Biden was out saying, yeah, you got to get the shot. If you get the shot, you can't catch COVID. You get, which wasn't true. You, you, if you get the shot, you can't, uh, you won't end up in the hospital or you're less likely to. And, uh, and that turned out not to be true. Uh, you can't transmit it to other people. That turned out to me not to be true. And you can't die. All of those things, all of these statements from both public health officials and experts and from politicians like Biden saying, you got to get it. Uh, it'll it'll do all kinds of good things for you, and it doesn't have any real downsides. A lot of that turned out to be false or at least overstated. Am, am I wrong? 
I mean, this is a ripple effect of the pandemic. This is also a crisis for the medical experts, for the public policymakers, for the politicians, because it really, I mean, you're just mentioning a, a few of them. There was a phalanx of leaders who told us uh, untrue information, falsehoods about the efficacy of the vaccines, about why we needed these COVID mandates, about, you know, the claim that the vaccines would completely end the, the pandemic. Um, we were told this on MSNBC, on NPR, on in the major newspapers, by the CDC, by President Biden, by dozens of members of Congress, and it wasn't supported by the evidence. I mean, and these are strong interventions into society. I mean, compelling people to take the vaccine or they will lose their employment. Um, I, I just can't compare that to any of the other public policy issues that we debate every day, whether that's taxes or any other form of health care or infrastructure. There, there's really no similarities. No, there's not. And and really, it degraded confidence, not just on the subject of COVID and vaccines, but it degraded confidence across just about every the, uh, just about all the rest of medicine, too. I'm not sure there's a way to, you know, put metrics to that or, or say there's a quantifiable amount of confidence that's been lost. But an awful lot of Americans are now very, very skeptical of medicine in general, aren't they? I think that's right. I mean, I've seen I've covered health care policy politics issues for a long time, um, covered the affordable care de- debate, uh, Obamacare, other um, big uh, issues debated in Congress. And it's really interesting to see kind of a shift in the sands here. You know, the, it's typically the people on the left, Democrats who have been more critical of pharmaceutical companies who have been more willing to question their claims. And that's just completely reversed um, Republicans have been much more eager. Look at the look at the the leaders in Congress now in the House, Jim Jordan and others. You know they're subpoenaing Pfizer and others, where, where Democrats would never lift a finger to do that type of thing in this day and age. Um, and I think that comes back to the the, the really just peculiar politics and demands, uh, the lack of evidence and demands for uh, not just the mandate, but just a whole slew of other really extreme policies, whether that's, that's school closures or, or, or other lockdowns. I want, to, I want to know, I'm talking to Lee Fang, by the way. You can find his investigative newsletter on Substack at Lee Fang, L-E-E-F-A-N-G dot com. I don't want to leave this story behind because I think there are a bunch of things that haven't yet been determined, you know, or at least nailed down tight. And some of that is the, the decision to say you have emergency use authorization. So that's how they quickly got approval of something that Fauci just in 2019, the year before the pandemic, was on tape. He was at a conference, and he said, well, you know, if we ever go to a new, a, a brand new and novel kind of system for making vaccines or shots, uh, it's going it, to it's gonna take full, you know, clinical trials and everything else. It'll take about 10 years. We've got tape of him saying that in 2019, and then by 2020, it's like, no, no, we can get this done in, a, you know, less than a year. And, 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 well, how did you get EU, you know, the emergency use authorization? And, well, there was nothing else that was available, uh, you know, that, that was available at the time that was a, you know, a, an acceptable treatment of some kind. So what about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? Well, the government took those off the table, which gave them the permission, the ability to make the emergency use authorization. Have I misunderstood any of that, Lee? I, I think that's right. You're, you're asking the right questions. For too long, we weren't allowed, we weren't really encouraged to ask any of these questions. If you ask questions like this, it was completely stigmatized in the media. Um, if you ask critical questions around 
uh, the approval process around how these policies were formulated um, in, in 2020 and 2021, early 2022, um, you were roundly criticized and, and told that you were helping people die. You were trying to push people towards their deaths. You know, you, you were trying to extend the pandemic. I mean, just really extreme rhetoric to marginalize any kind of dissenting voice. And how do, how do we come up with, with policies in a democracy? Why are we different than a society like North Korea or China or Saudi Arabia? Um, it, it, w- America does best when we have public debate, when we have a, a, a real discourse and a push and pull around these questions. That's how we formulate good policy. When we look at the evidence and we have actual dissent, um, but we didn't have that early on in the pandemic, um, just a kind of silencing and censoring and a uh, manufacturing of consent for some of these policies. And all the scare tactics, like it's going to be a, a dark, uh, deadly winter and, and dismal winter, you know, from, from Biden. And, and no no real, you know, uh, come to Jesus moment on that where you'd say, hold on, was that true or not? It just got left behind and the next story popped up. Lee, keep up the good work. We really appreciate the great journalism. Thanks so much for having me. Take care, Lars. It's my pleasure. Lee Fang, leefang.com on Substack. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails. And how about the world punishing China for keeping a really critical secret at a very critical time? You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is McGruff the Crime Dog. Some solid advice from Senator John Kennedy. Look, if you hate cops just because of cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. In a moment, I'm going to tell you, about what China did and about the secrets it's kept that we just found out about recently. And these were critical secrets at the tail end of 2019, beginning of 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic that caused such a worldwide upset. I mean, businesses closed, people put out of work, all kinds of chaos. And then we find out that communist China was holding back a lot of the most critical information that might have changed the way we handled that pandemic, might have saved lives, and might have le- led to considerably less prob- fewer problems in the United States. But first, let me go to Oscar in Nevada, listening on KKFT. Hey, Oscar, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Uh, hey, thank you, thank you. You know, I listen to you every day, and I just love hearing you talk. Thank you. But the only time I can hear you, the only time I can hear you talk is in the car. You know, I mean, I'm driving from point A to point B, and I got the radio on, and I can't ever really memorize your phone number. So if you'd say it more often, I call you more. I'd have called you sooner. But here, well, I say it. I say it about about twelve to sixteen times an hour. So I don't know that I can get more often than that. But you you can listen outside the car. You can stream the show. You, I mean, there are radios that work outside your car, but maybe that's that doesn't fit your lifestyle. Well, you know, where I live, you know, the reception for radios is not that good. It seems to work in the car when I'm in motion, but not where I'm at home. So anyway, I, w- I just want to bring something to your attention okay. that I remember hearing a long, long time ago. I'm, hey, listen, first of all, I'm an old guy. I'm 90 years old. Wow. And, and uh, 
yeah, I don't talk Good for you. Old God bless. That, that is, well, thank you, sir. That isn't the point. The point is, I just want to tell you how old I was. And when I heard this, I don't remember. But I remember Joe Biden saying to someone, I'm not sure if it was on TV or the radio or, or in the Internet. I remember him saying to this person, immigrants make better citizens when they come to this country. And that, I will tell you, I can tell you, Oscar, why they do this. Yep. And it's a game they're playing. Can I illustrate the game by asking you a couple of questions? Sure. Okay. And sure. you'll answer honestly. Are drug dealers sure. good people? Hell no. Hold on. You don't like your local pharmacist? As a matter of fact, I have my ups and downs with him. <laughs> okay. But, but is a pharmacist a good person, generally? Well, most of the time, I guess, yeah, they are. But when I said drug dealer, what were you thinking of? Oh, recreational drugs. People selling heroin and fentanyl and all that. Oscar, politicians are playing the same game I just played on you, which is they say immigrants make the best citizens. So we're going to let 9 million illegal aliens into the country. And what they want to do is say that when they say immigrant, that they mean both somebody who came here legally and legitimately and through a long, complicated process that is complicated for a reason. We vet carefully the roughly one million people who say, I want to move to America, I want to do it legally, I want to get the ability to work, and if I keep my nose clean and don't commit crimes and study the book, I can become a citizen in five years. That's one group. Then you have the group that just says, we don't give a damn about your laws. We're going to come into your country without asking permission. We're going to enter illegally. We're going to work illegally. We're going to identify ourselves illegally. And almost everything about our existence here is going to be illegal. What Democrats do is they call both of them together immigrants. Now, I I don't consider somebody who comes into your country illegally and is breaking the law just by being there, breaking the law by working, oftentimes breaks the law in how they identify themselves, whether they pay taxes, whether they work under the table or over the table. I don't consider that an immigrant. If you want to be part of somebody else's country, you're an immigrant. If you come in and say, I'm not. I'm going to come into your country, and I'm not going to follow any of the rules that you have or most of the rules. If they get in my way, I'm just going to violate the rules. And yet... Democrats want to call both groups by the same word, immigrant. And and I think there's a reason. Because in general, if you ask me, Lars, are people who immigrate immigrate to America, immigrant uh, into America, are they more law-abiding than citizens? And in general, they are. If you're a green... But there's a reason for that, Oscar. If you come to America on a green card, so you have the right to come here, you have the right to work here, you have a Social Security number... And you can work a job, and in five years, if you want to, you can apply to be a citizen. That's a very law-abiding person, but there's a good reason they're law-abiding. If you violate the law and you have a green card, America can take the green card away and boot you out of the country. I used to have a young lady who worked for me as my producer, and she, her parents had brought her here when she was a kid from Canada. She's a Canadian citizen. I think she works for another talk show host now. And... Uh, and she told me, she said, I know that if I ever break the law, they can take my green card away and send me back to a country that I, I haven't been in in 30 years. And I, I will be forced to leave the United States. If an illegal alien breaks the law, under at least under this government, 
uh, the Joe Biden government and many of these blue cities and blue states, almost nothing happens to them. I mean, the latest example we've given people is a four times deported illegal alien in Colorado. And this most recent time when he was kicked out of the country and then came back in illegally, committing a felony along the way, by the way, if you've already been deported, if you reenter America having been deported, when you reenter, you're committing a federal felony. A judge saw him in front of him because he'd been arrested for drunk driving, which puts people's lives at risk. And uh, right. he decided, I'll just cut this guy loose uh, until his trial for drunk driving. Do you know what the guy did four days later? He was driving killed drunk. He was driving drunk again, and he killed uh, a 47-year-old woman and her teenage son in Colorado. So that's yeah, yeah, what. I remember that. Yeah. So, in general, people with green cards are very law-abiding. But there's there's a reason. If you say that guy is so law-abiding, he never breaks any laws. You say, do you realize that guy? If, Oscar, if you break the law, I'm assuming you're an American citizen, I'm an American citizen, if I break the law, they yeah. can't kick me out of the country. If you have a green card and you break the law, the United States is free to take your green card, and they tell you, they say, you you break the law, we can take your green card and kick you out, and they do. So saying that yeah. green card holders, legitimate legal immigrants to the United States, are more law-abiding, they uh, that is true. Illegal aliens yeah. are less law-abiding, are considerably oh, less. In fact, in fact, right now, about 14% of the convicted murderers in prison right now are illegal aliens. And you say, hold on, illegals are maybe 5 6% of the population of the United States. How do they get to be 14% of the murderers and 18% of the rapists? It's because if you ask yourself this, Oscar, it actually makes logical sense. If you have somebody who came here illegally, works illegally, uh, identifies himself or herself illegally, do you think he really gives a damn what the rest of the rules are? Well, I tell you what, I don't. I don't think any of them give a damn. They, I've seen, I've seen them act that way, and they don't care what happens. They try to stay away from the law, but they'll do whatever they have to do, so they think to earn money so they can send home for their own benefit oscar thanks for the call and many happy returns let's go to uh, kevin kevin we're close to the break but what's on your mind sure yeah i got a little comment about socialism and how it kind of uh, can get used in a lot of negative ways and how people going to school oftentimes get indoctrinated to different ideas i had a uh, you know family and friends who go in one way and come out another way and they're just totally getting brainwashed into believing things it's not even necessarily socialism in of itself, the idea of helping, you know, each other and helping your fellow man, that's all good. The idea of that is actually positive, but how it can get used and implemented on the people uh, by corrupt governments is just so devastating. It's, uh... It is, Kevin. And when you learn helping somebody is charity, when the government comes to you and at the point of a gun takes your money and giving gives it to somebody else, that's not helping somebody. We'll be back in a moment. By the way, I'll tell you more about China another time. You got the Lars Larson Show.
Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping web tech, the web, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you and a pleasure to welcome back John Burns, Deputy Director of Concerned Veterans for America and a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and the Army National Guard. John, good to have you back. And since I haven't said so before, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, New Year New Year news is that John Burns is now the senior advisor to Concerned Veterans for America, not the deputy director oh. anymore. Um, and I'm just trying to keep my HR department happy with me by telling everyone that. Okay. Senior advisor rather than deputy director. Yes. Fair enough. Okay. Let's talk yes, about sir. the VA. What in the heck is going wrong at the VA? And is Joe Biden's VA hiding rampant sexual harassment in that agency? Well, I would say everything is going wrong with the VA, and the answer is probably yes. Um, You know, we've seen Republican administrations have a very, very hard time managing the VA, uh, but this administration seems not to be even making an effort. Uh, It's just, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, You know, the VA is the second largest bureaucracy in the federal government. Uh, It has it very much in some ways a mind of its own. Uh, You know, it cares more about serving its senior bureaucrats and even its its rank and file union employees than it does about actually, you know, the health care or even the, the benefits and services that it gives to, to, to veterans themselves. Uh, but this latest story is, you know, it's just it, in some ways it's it's a rerun of, you know, the first things I worked on, on at Concerned Veterans for America a dozen years ago. And in other ways, it's just newer and more horrific all at the same time. Is this let me ask you something, John, would would we be better off if the VA was not run as a civilian agency, but actually ran with military personnel in it who best understand the the issues that veterans are facing? Because that you know, was if you asked me that me. before I saw the special inspector general's Afghanistan report, I might have oh, said yes. Uh, but having read that uh, two or three years ago, um, you know, and, and, and just some of the things that I've seen senior Pentagon leadership try to get away with. Uh, well, I well you we wouldn't have gotten away to, with this. We need to break it down so that the federal government's not running everything. How about that? Could we privatize it? I mean, and, and I know uh, some veterans will get all over me about saying that, but it, would we be better off with an agency run maybe by a multiple, multiple uh, civilian contractors and say, if you guys step out of line, you lose your contract and we're going to give it to these guys and gals over here. I mean, that's that's one way of doing it, isn't it? Uh, well, I think, you know, privatize, you know, we don't want to privatize the VA. That's not our goal. But I think, uh, you know, we, we've advocated consistently for community care. And I think that's an approach that we should take. Right? If you look at what the VA does well, right, it does it as a federal agency. And at the same time, it doesn't do everything. So the, the two most popular things that the VA does is provide home loan guarantees yep. for people. They don't have to go to the bank of the veteran, right? They can go to any licensed mortgage broker or bank that they want, and the GI Bill, which it's done in several different iterations since the end of World War II to the, to the current iteration, which started around 2008 or 2009, been very, very popular with, with going on four generations of veterans now, both of those programs. The VA, all they do is, is provide the backing. You get to pick your college. You get to pick your banker. You get to pick your home. You get to pick your degree program. The only place we don't do that is healthcare. And And yet it, what you just described is largely – a privatized business saying, go to your bank, go to your mortgage broker, say, I want to buy a house. Great. You you qualify as VA. Good. We'll get the paperwork in place. Boom, done. And it makes it a lot easier for veterans to buy homes. God bless them. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, this, you know, this, this new story 
um, where you know there's so much irony. This is Joe Biden's administration. Um, it, it's the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, but this is you know an administration that has made you know much much uh, much hay out of ideas like equity, diversity, and inclusion, uh, and, you know, and equity and and fairness. And yet we have a sexual harassment story out of the de- department, what's essentially the VA's DEI arm, right? The Department or, or Agency for Resolution Management, Diversity and Inclusion. And the, this is where the sexual harassment is taking place. And how is that even possible? I mean, do people not understand when you come to work, you know, d- d- don't do this kind of stuff. It's it. We've got laws, we've got rules, we've got all these procedures, and we can't get people to follow them? Well, you know... Some, I know what happens some, in the military, too. And but, some companies can't, right? Some agencies, yeah. some some organizations can. Uh, you know, there are organizations, uh, you know, like mine that fire people when this comes to light, if there's substantial evidence. But, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan, with a famous quote, you know, the, the closest thing to immortality is a government <laughs> agency. Uh, you know, it's also true that the, the closest thing to, you know, to permanent employment is getting a, a federal government job, um, you know, whether it's a, a senior one where, you know, you're just ensconced just below the political appointees or a union one. Either way, you're very, very hard to, to, you know, to oust. And we see that time and time again at the VA. You know, we passed or CVA helped Congress pass back in 2014, the VA Access Choice and Accountability Act, which was supposed to make it easier to find your senior executive service folks at the VA, the senior executive leaders, like the ones under investigation here for sexual harassment. We, we helped pass the VA uh, Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act of 2017. Um, you know, and we see that the Whistleblower Protection Office hasn't been very good at protecting whistleblowers. So the whistleblowers in this case felt they had to go to Congress. No surprise that the you know, resolution <laughs> management uh, and uh, diver- diversity and inclusion office um, isn't very inclusive and is actually practicing harassment. I'm talking to John Burns, who's a senior advisor, correct? That's the correct title now? Correct. Senior, senior advisor, Concerned Veterans for America. I want to know one last thing before we wrap up tonight, because we're up against a break. What should Americans think when we see states like Maine that say, we're going to spend millions of dollars building housing for refugees, illegal aliens, and the like, while American veterans, too many of them, are living on the streets? Well, I think what you're going to see is people, you know, what they've been doing for for two decades now, voting with their their moving vans, right? Uh, so we have this, you know, this this this, you know, big blue state exodus and red state, you know, influx, and I think that's going to continue. Uh, but what people should do to help fight this kind of you know, this corruption at the Department of Veterans Affairs is go to our website, cv4a.org, uh, and sign one of our petitions about reforming the VA. And there's got to be a way to do that because, uh, I, you know, I, I guess one of my biggest problems, John, with it being a civilian agency but an agency of the federal government is that it is good to be able to fire people. And and maybe the private, private sector has its share of problems as well in the same, in the same venue, you know, sexual harassment. But you can fire people. It's extraordinarily difficult to fire people who work for the federal government. And even before you, you, you bring in union representation and all that. And I just think that if, if it were a private, if there were private providers of this who did a good job, great, reward them. If they do a bad job and they got this kind of stuff going on, they lose their contracts. There have to be consequences. And when you tell people, you know, that having a federal government job means you essentially can't be fired, That makes it awfully tough to straighten people up. John, keep up the good work as senior advisor at Concerned Veterans for America, and congratulations. Have a great evening. Thanks.
and you as well. And thank you for your service in both the Marine Corps and the Army National Guard. Glad to get your emails. Talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed. Yes, I have a face for radio, but that's okay. You can tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show and send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Somewhere. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome to a Wednesday. It's a pleasure to be with you. And with much of America in a deep freeze right now, I thought we'd talk about something involving the homeless and about the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has already signaled that it's going to take on one of the most consequential cases involving the so-called homeless. Now, most of the homeless, in my read of the situation, they are drug addicts. They are addicted to alcohol. They may be addicted to both. A few of them may be simply mentally ill without the involvement of drugs or alcohol. And some people are there because of economic circumstances, but the vast majority of them are there because of their own addiction. So what happens? Well, right now, cities all over America are largely barred from cleaning those messes up. They, they can't do much about it. And it's because of a decision called Boise. Uh, the cases are named based on who brings the cases and who's being sued and all that. But that case came down some long time ago. I'll get into the details of that because this is the chance we have to have the U.S. Supreme Court actually say to America's cities, you're allowed to clean up the mess and then we can actually get something done. And for those of you with soft hearts, you can probably even get something meaningful done for those people who are living on the streets right now. And they are beset by a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, or both, and mental illness on top of all of that. Can you do much of anything if you say, well, the law allows you to simply live in your own filth and live on public property, and authorities are not allowed to do anything about it? The Supreme Court can fix this. Now, whether they will or not, that's another matter. But at least they're going to hear the case. Let me get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to a Wednesday. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Easy to remember. And then, of course, you can vote in our poll on X. Used to be Twitter. Now it's X. Uh, we put up a daily question every single day. You can find it at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. We did that to make sure that people who don't want to have anything to do with Twitter or X or anything else, you can still vote in the Twitter poll. Please vote only once. But let me get back to this case that's going to be before the U.S. Supreme Court. They're going to hear it, and it actually involves... Uh, involves this question of whether or not cities in America should be forbidden by law from cleaning up these massive homeless encampments in so many of America's big cities. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court announced Friday that it was willing to take on the case and that they would decide 
whether or not the lower courts were right in saying to cities, if you've made it illegal, even a crime, to be camping on public property, occupying property that you have no right to be on, and taking drugs, and bringing garbage, and leaving human filth, and needles, and everything else, all the whole mess that goes with it, squalor, disease, shouting crazy people in neighborhoods, all of this could be fixed. And my friend Betsy McCoy, who used to be the lieutenant governor of New York City, but knows a lot about health issues, she was writing recently, she said the town of Grants Pass, Oregon, about 250 miles south of Portland, is challenging a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that goes all the way back to 2018, shielding the homeless from any punishment whatsoever for camping on public property. And as she writes, and I agree with her, the Ninth Circuit Court, I call them the Ninth Circus Court, because they are, bar none, the most overturned court of appeals in America, meaning they get it wrong more often than every other federal appeals court anywhere in America. The Ninth Circuit, known for its left-wing jurisprudence, says penalties for sleeping on public property amount to cruel and unusual punishment. Not cruel and unusual punishment of the neighborhood they're occupying or the people that they decide to assault or the garbage they bring to people's neighborhoods. No, it's cruel and unusual for society to say, you can't pop, pop, you can't camp here. You don't own this property. You don't have any right to this property. You're bringing filth and disease and needles and crime and all kinds of things to this property. The ruling has tied the hands of politicians in places like Phoenix, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle, uh, all of these places. And courts in the rest of the United States have said, this is a reason we're going to allow homeless encampments and forbid the local authorities from doing anything about it. And he, she writes, what the justices decide this spring is going to affect the entire country. She says advocates for the homeless say cities are unwilling to spend the money to take care of the indigent. And Betsy McCoy calls them out. Don't fall for it. All across the nation, municipalities have been increasing shelter accommodations in some cities, spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars to offer people another place to live, another way to live, to live in shelters instead. But many homeless flatly refuse to come in off the streets. Now, if it happens to be cold, like it is, well, the, almost the entire country is in the icebox right now. But people choose to sleep in the rough because they don't like the rules. Now, I've actually had homeless people, when, as a reporter, I've gone down to the homeless camps and uh, you talk to them and you say, why don't you go into the shelter? You've got shelter, you've got heat, you've got a bed to sleep in, you've got food, you have a toilet down the hall, you have the opportunity to bathe or take a shower. And you know what they've told me? I mean, not just what Betsy is writing about. They've told me to my face, I don't want to go in the shelter. In the shelter, I can't sleep in the same bed as my girlfriend or boyfriend. In the shelter, I can't bring my dog. I can't smoke my cigarettes. I can't drink my booze. I can't take my heroin. I can't smoke my methamphetamine. I've been told all of those things. And you say, okay, you choose to live outside. That's your business. I think the Supreme Court is going to take a look at this, and they're going to say, now, if you've turned down another place to stay and it's been offered up at taxpayer expense, then you're not allowed to camp on public property. One survey in the city of Portland showed 75% of the homeless, so-called addicts, most of them, turned down offers for shelter. In San Francisco, in a 2023 survey, 54% said, no, I don't want to go in the shelter. 
The homeless, as she writes, deserve compassion, but allowing them to stay on the street where they freeze to death on a sidewalk or succumb to disease is not compassionate. And she's absolutely right about that. When you say, well, they have the right to be there. You mean they have the right to overdose and die? They have the right to freeze and die? They have a right to get diseases and give diseases to others and die? And then she points out a stat I'd never heard before. The average person who's living homeless cuts their own lifespan by 30 years. This is why when you see people living on the streets, if they've been there for any good length of time, you'll see people in their 20s who look like they're in their 50s. And you say, how does that happen? And as they say, it's a rough life out there. Uh, the courts have said time is of essence. The court, in this case, the Supreme Court, will rule no later than June. And we can only hope that, as she writes, expect the justices to overturn the Ninth Circuit's loony decision and free the cities of America to restore order and safety to their streets. I'll add to that. Let it happen. We've got to have it happen. Time to get your calls on this Wednesday. 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X. And, of course, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Coming American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned. The Green Agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. I get pupper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to talk about the federal budget. And I don't want your eyes to glaze over. This is hugely important because America's national debt has grown outrageously, especially in about the last 20 years. And we're now at a number that is starting to get into the danger zone where it could literally spin out of control. And the perfect person to test and see if I've overstated that is our friend Veronique de Rougy, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Veronique, it's great to have you back and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year and thank you for having me. How close are we to that point where it simply gets beyond the control, uh, beyond our control, where it grows in such a way that the growth in the debt causes more spending, that causes more growth in the debt, and it just starts into a, a giant spiral with the sky's the limit? You know, we may find very soon. Uh, I think kind of I used to uh, to believe that there is a, such an, a, a number where all of a sudden investors um, – think, okay, this debt's too high, this country is on a terrible path, and, and that triggers also all sorts of, uh, of problems. But one of the, th- and, 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 you know, and I was thinking, so is it, is it like 180% of GDP, of debt to GDP ratio, which is where the CBO projects we're going to be in 30 years, or is it 200, or is it like 150, right? 
But now I've actually really come to believe that it will happen uh, whenever investors uh, worry that um, that maybe uh, we've accumulated so much debt that the the money they've lended to the government is not going to be repaid other than with deflated money. And obviously, they would have good reason to think this, considering the last uh, three years. And that's when uh, all of that fear will trigger them to ask for even higher interest rates than they're asking right now, and also um, uh, planned accordingly as if uh, there was going to be inflation tomorrow, and that means uh, inflation today. That's one of the things that we've learned in the last four years of studying inflation, is that the moment people fear uh, inflation tomorrow, it, it happens today. And in fact, we just got word that, unlike Joe Biden's predictions, that inflation is gradually easing down. The latest numbers seem to suggest it's actually on an upward track right now. It's it's yes. right now, what is it, 75% above where it was when Joe Biden took office and where it had been for about a decade or two before then. So we went from a but fairly it's also stable... more important. Yes. What is that? Yeah, more important. More importantly, actually, it went from a downward trajectory to uh, having stalled uh, or even actually ticking up a little bit. So the reason why this is worrisome, right, is because a lot of people who had been fast to claim victory over inflation, which to me was always mind blowing, because we're at least at over three percent. Uh, of inflation, and so that's not victory. And uh, and also, I actually, this is kind of somewhat consistent with what I've been fearing for a long time and saying, and everyone thinks I'm, I'm kind of nuts. But uh, the problem is, like, we're, with the fight against inflation, and inflation itself, it's put uh, upward pressure on interest rates at much, much higher rates than we've had in the last 15 years. And that leads to enormous interest payments, right? We've gone, uh, we've gone from, uh, um, let me look at my numbers, 470, uh, 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 billion dollars to, uh, 659 billion dollars this year, and we're heading to 900 billion dollars in interest payment this fiscal year in 2024. So that's a lot, and we don't have the money for it. So what do we do? We borrow for it. And my worry has been that actually, um, this is going to be what push in, some push investor over and make them worry that they're not going to be repaid because the value of government bond, right, it's based on the payoff that you'll get, and that payoff is primary surpluses. That's basically the, it's, it's revenue minus spending if you exclude uh, interest if you include interest payments, and that is not increasing at all. And so they have kind of good reason to think, okay, so now they're adding this nine hundred billion dollars a year. Onto and they're borrowing for it, and they're not cutting anything in spending. Maybe that could be what pushes us over. Well, in fact, when I think of those numbers, I try and think of them in smaller numbers, Veronique, because I'm more comfortable with that. We had nine hundred billion dollars. You're just shy of three billion dollars a day, which means that for the average American, they think, well, what does that mean? It means the first three billion dollars you pay in taxes that America pays in taxes every single day is all going to interest. It's not going to build roads. It's not going to equip the military or pay Social Security yep. or anything like that. It's, it's just going, it's like a company that's in so much debt that the first, you know, if it was a grocery store, the, fir- the sales from 
is 6 a.m. to noon, all go to pay your debt uh, or the interest on your debt and only the money you make after 12 noon, except now the numbers get more like five o'clock at night. So we're spending the whole day just paying the interest and we've got a little bit left at the end and that's our breathing room and there ain't much. Yes. No, I mean, it's a good point. It's a good, it's a good way, uh, it's a good way to pay it because of course we need to start by paying interest on our debt. We can't default on, uh, our investors. That would be a disaster for uh, the U.S. But, uh, like when you think that in, in 10 years, it's going to be consuming, um, like close to 4% of GDP, just interest payment alone, assuming that inflation is, is tamed and assuming that interest interest uh, rates are not going above what the CBO has projected. It's going to be, it's going to be consuming $1.4 trillion in 10 years. And that means that there's, one one of the things we've learned in the last 50 years is under the current tax system, there's so much that the government can do to raise money in the end. Apart from uh, economic growth, which is incredible at boosting uh, revenue, uh, you can you can't really raise way more revenue by raising taxes, by raising marginal tax rates, by doing all that stuff. You could by creating a new tax, which I still think there's not enough appetite in the U.S. Thank God for that. But uh, you can't really do anything. So what it means is concretely, as interest payments get bigger, a bigger share of the revenue collected, so those tax taxes that we pay, is going to be consumed by interest payments. And then, of course, that means more of the spending needs to go be paid for with more borrowing and more borrowing, and that fuels potentially inflation, investors' fears, higher interest rates. And I think it is real. It's very real because I like to say this, and I'm going to repeat it, but uh, 54% of our debt as a maturity of three years or less and wow. 33% of our debt as a maturity of a year or less. Oh, actually, 31%. So that means if interest rates stay high, when that when that 54% rolls over and needs to be refinanced, exactly. it's going from very low rates of a few years ago to very exactly. high rates of today. Yeah. And so that means the consequences of this is like even if inflation, we were done with inflation, even though even if the Federal Reserve was, uh, going to deliver on this promise to cut rates three times, which I really don't think they will, or if they do, God saves us. But uh, I think it's a big mistake uh, until inflation is back to target. Uh, the higher interest payments are going to stay with us for a very long time. And then, of course, if it's not taken care of, then more and more and more and more of the debt rolls over. Um, in it's It's roughly... Every year we roll over over $6 trillion. Unbelievable. Veronique, thank you very much. That's Veronique Desrougis. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and she gives us a perspective on what's going on in America's economy. Back in a moment, we'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you first. I might even be talking to a naysayer coming up next. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
Konstantin Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. I want to mark something that maybe much of the mainstream media is not going to mention, because if they did, they'd have to say nice things about President Donald Trump. And these days, the legacy mainstream media doesn't want to say anything good about Donald Trump. In fact, most of them don't want to mention his name. They don't even want to carry the words and the comments he made after his massive victory in Iowa the other night. But tomorrow is the First Step Act's fifth anniversary. And the guy who can talk about it most knowledgeably, other than Donald Trump, is Jerron Smith, who's testifying tomorrow before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the fifth anniversary of the First Step Act. Jerron, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Uh, by the way, I should mention that you're former deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy and deputy director for the Office of American Innovation under President Trump. So, what should Americans take in when they can? And would you mind outlining for them what the First Step Act did for so many people who were sitting in prison? Sure. The First Step Act reformed our federal prison systems by allowing for individuals who are low level or minimal on risk of recidivating to participate in a recidivism reduction program. Um, recidivism reduction is all about preventing people from returning to prison. And so we use a word like recidivism that measures um, the likelihood that they will return. We've learned from states like Texas and Georgia that if you have these individuals participate in programming like mental health, um, uh, drug rehabilitation, or you give them a vocational job or educational training, they're less likely to reoffend once they leave the prisons. And as an incentive for those individuals that participate in that recidivism reduction program, they can spend some of their time in home confinement. And what we've seen um, since the passage of the First Step Act is an overwhelmingly successful um, ability to reduce recidivism. Federal um, uh, recidivism is around 47%. So about 47% of people who leave prisons um, end up coming back. Under the First Step Act, those individuals who left um, recidivated 12% of the time. And so that's a 37% reduction um, in would-be individuals that would co- commit maybe 3,000 to 4,000 crimes. And so that's been a huge success, and that's one of the biggest reforms of the First Step Act. You know, it's funny, Jerron, that I, I'd seen some numbers last fall or maybe tail end of last summer uh, that said that, that there were 30,000 people who had a release that was expedited by the First Step Act, and they said nine in out of every ten have not been rearrested or re you know put back in prison, reincarcerated. That's that's an, an extraordinary rate given what you just cited as the the usual rate for federal prison releases. That's exactly right, and um, that was the whole reason why um, conservatives, because it was a Republican House and a Republican Senate, along with a Republican president, that passed the legislation, um, because the focus there was to be smart on crime, to take a nuanced approach that could use evidence-based research and apply that to modernize the way that we do public safety. And in being smart on crime, we can reduce crime and put more resources towards the violent offenders to ensure that um, most more communities are safe. 
Now, what's the next step? I mean, is there is there a place when you give this testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee tomorrow, you know, you're in front of a body that's majority Democrat. So these are the sure. folks. I mean, I, I don't know how far you can go and, and still be politic when you're talking to a group of Democrats saying, you know, you guys got on board this as well with Donald Trump. And, and that's I mean, some of them did, didn't they? Sure. And uh, many of them, um, um, I've built a relationship based off of trust and um, that's one of the things I, I wanted to focus on is that in this country, when we're dealing with so many um, issues, our elected leaders need to build a certain amount of trust with each other to kind of create infrastructure that's going to help all Americans. Um, and the First Step Act is an example of that. Um, we had people from um, across the um, political spectrum um, on the right and on the left um, put put things aside and kind of focused on data and what works. And uh, we use um, that data and what works to create a solution in, in terms of the first step back that has made communities safer. I'm talking to Jerron Smith, who's the former deputy assistant for the president for domestic policy and deputy director for the office of American innovation under president Trump. Now you saw some of this firsthand because you grew up in Cleveland, didn't you? I did. Um, I honestly, and what was that like? up in, yeah, growing up in the 80s and 90s, you know, um, like many urban areas around the country, uh, we struggled um, through the war on drugs. You know, um, this is a time where uh, violent crime was at its highest. Um, and so uh, I also saw, you know, a blanket approach towards how we dealt with the increased um, crime and drug crimes. And uh, not everyone who was in the drug market were violent offenders who carried guns, you know, um, because of lack of opportunity with the leaving of manufacturing, going overseas, people turned to these quick ways of, of doing crime. And we had first-time offenders like Alice Marie Johnson, who um, basically got a life sentence, and she was a nonviolent uh, drug offender. Um, and so it was under the, uh, President Trump's leadership that we wanted to take a more nuanced approach so that we can focus on the, um, uh, people who, who intend to kind of do harm to communities and separate them for individuals that made a mistake and want, and are deserving of a second chance. And so, um, you know, my, my background and how I grew up, um, um, put me in position to kind of know the difference between um, the two different communities. And that nuanced approach, um, I think, is starting to catch fire um, in certain metropolitans. Um, through public safety solutions, I've been to places like Dallas, where we've had the police work with ex-gang offenders to deal with violent crime um, in their communities. And what we've seen is great results in, in decreasing the violent crime across Dallas. And so so we're continuing to um, uh, you know, push those smart on crime policies, working with organizations like Right on Crime and Americans for Prosperity. Joran, do you think there's much likelihood that in this election year we're going to get much bipartisan support for anything out of Capitol Hill, <laughs> like 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 you got with the First Step Act five years ago? You know, I'm a I'm an optimistic person, so I think <laughs> that like if our leaders are intentional enough, they actually can work on stuff to get things done. Um, but you need that type of leadership in the White House. Um, to really kind of drive um, bipartisanship. And I'm not talking about just bipartisanship where you get, you know, um, you know, 10 percent of the of, of the right and then 90 percent of the left. You know, I'm talking about true bipartisanship where, you know, you can get the majority of majority of both parties. And so um, I'm not all the way convinced that that can happen um, with today's leadership. Um, which is why, you know, um, I think having the change and putting a leader like Donald Trump back 
uh, would, would provide the right leadership to create the type of bipartisanship that's going to lead to a lasting impact on America so that we can be the most prosperous nation in the world. Well, you and I are on the same page on that one. And frankly, I, uh, my audience knows I don't think much of Joe Biden. And in fact, I, I agree on one thing with his vice president, that Joe Biden's a racist. But, you know, but that's just the assessment of Lars Larson and Kamala Harris. The only point, I think one of the only few points of agreement that, that I would have with her. Yeah, I mean, look, honestly, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We can look at mental health challenges. Um, issues of jobs, the issues that we have overseas. You know, we need leadership that's going to be bold and kind of thinking outside the box and moving our country to the 21st century. Well, I got to tell you something. Uh, it's a big deal. I mean, to be able to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I, I wish you well on that. And I hope they treat you right. Thanks so much, Lars. Jerron, thank you very much. That Jerron Smith who is the former deputy assistant for uh, president uh, for domestic policy for President Trump and deputy director for the Office of American Innovation under President Trump. And wouldn't it be nice to see uh, some of the Democrats who talk all day long about bipartisanship and all the rest of that, and then when they actually get to Capitol Hill, maybe not so much. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers go first. Check out my Instagram feed, and yes, you're going to find I have a face for radio. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Do you? All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to tell you something. Anybody who listens to this show for about five minutes, when it comes to the subject of so-called transgender or gender ideology, you know where I stand. Uh, And if you don't, I think I can make it very simple. If you're an adult, and you're an adult man, and you want to call yourself by a female name and dress in female clothes or women's clothes, go for it. Leave the damn kids alone. And I've been complaining about this for a while, and I pointed out to you the reason that all of this is happening to such a great extent. It's a multi-billion dollar business. Last year, the estimate is that American doctors and American hospitals, some of them the major hospitals in the whole country, literally made about $2.2 billion on so-called gender-affirming care. Now, I want to tell you something. There's a reason that human beings use euphemisms. If you're out to dinner with a bunch of your friends and a young lady says, I'm going to go off and powder my nose. Now, we all know what she means is I'm going to the toilet. Except you don't say I'm going to the toilet. You say I'm going to powder my nose. A guy might say, i got to see a man about a horse. You use euphemisms when you want to cover up something that is unpleasant or ugly or will not be taken well. When hospitals and doctors start talking about gender-affirming care, what they're trying to do is say, well, you know, we could call it what it is, uh, double mastectomies for teenage girls, chemical castration for teenage boys, but if we call it that, we can't make it sound warm and fuzzy and all nice and all that. Well, there's some brand new information about some of the chemicals that the doctors are using on your kids or your grandkids, and it's disturbing. 
I would remind you that there's one major doctor, in fact, the video of this doctor, he, he, he practices, if you can call it that, at Oregon Health and Science University. But the video was actually shown to the United States Congress. It was so outrageous. So you see this relatively young guy who's a doctor, and he's one of those gender-affirming doctors. And in this video, he himself is saying, well, you know, we're trying out some new things on these kids. We're not even sure if they're going to work. And I've asked you before, you know, would you go to a doctor if the doctor said, well, I think I know what's wrong with you, and I think I know how to fix it, and it, and this treatment will probably work. How fast would you beat feet for the door if you heard a message like that? Well, guess what? There is some brand new information about the chemicals, the hormones that they're using on children and that they propose to use on your children in some cases. And in fact, in some places where lawmakers have actually rewritten the laws to say that if the teachers at your kid's school determine that your child desires to go from male to female or female to male, that those teachers and social workers and the rest can actually take the kid away from you, put the kid in a secret place, not tell mom and dad what is going on or what is being done to their child, and they will have this stuff done to your kid without your knowledge, without your say-so, and over your objections. Now, if I get a naysayer caller who says, yeah, we should be able to do that, we should have total strangers who, because they're social workers or because they're teachers or because they work for the government, who can, along with your immature child, who's 13 or 14 or 15 years old, um, decide that your child is going to transition. You know, that euphemism for going from boy to girl or girl to boy. And you say, well, but hold on. What happens if they change their mind? As so many people we're finding out have been changing their minds. There are some notorious cases of what they call detransitioners. In that case, they're saying, we're not going to do this stuff anymore because an awful lot of these people at 14 or 15 who decide to have this stuff done are deciding a couple of years later, hey, make me back the way I was. Well, guess what? The newest information, and I'll cite the source on it, it is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. In other words, this is a bunch of these chemical castrators and medical mutilators who are in a group that pushes the idea of so-called transgender health. And guess what they're admitting? I'm going to tell you, but first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you on board. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view or what I've said, that's perfectly all right. You are more than welcome. You'll be put right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our X poll, the poll on X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. But I mean this information to be valuable to parents out there who may have only had a passing acquaintance with the idea, what is this transgender stuff? And then you imagine, well, my son or daughter would never do something like that. I'll bet an awful lot of parents who find out that their kid has or is transitioning with the help of public you know, officials, teachers, social workers, and the like, are doing it without mom and dad's knowledge. Now, in some cases, what's really disturbing is parents who say, oh, no, I support my daughter's ability I support my daughter's ability to become a boy. I support my son's ability to turn himself into as close to a girl as medical science can achieve. But consider this. The Daily Caller Foundation, which is a news organization, uh, more for conservatives than for the loony left, 
But they report that this group called WPATH, or WPATH, whatever it's called, World Professional Association for Transgender Health, is now admitting that puberty blockers, these are the chemicals that are used to start this process and block puberty in your son or daughter, are more invasive than portrayed in the media and, get this is the important part, can have irreversible effects on minors like infertility, bone loss, and disruption of brain development. Now, this isn't coming from a group that's critical of this transgender nonsense. This is from a bunch of so-called professionals who participate in it, who make money at it. In some cases, huge amounts of money. That $2.2 billion that gender-affirming care generated last year in America alone is set to go to about $5 billion in the next couple of years. WPATH is a transgender medical organization that receives puberty suppression, cross-sex hormones, and sex reassignment surgery. However, during educational sessions recorded fall of last year that were part of a gen- transgender medicalization certification program, They had licensed clinical clinicians who published influential clinical guidance for sex reassignment standards because doctors have been telling parents and patients, well, you can take these puberty blockers, but if you change your mind later on, because after all, you're 14 or 15 or 16 years old, you probably change your mind every five minutes. So if you've decided you want to be a girl and you're currently a boy and we'll give you these chemicals and later on, we can reverse some of it. Dr. Daniel Metzger, a certified pediatric endocrinologist, explained how puberty blockers impede adolescents from developing calcium needed to prevent osteoporosis later in life. They're admitting that a lot of these chemicals are irreversible. You do it to your kid because your kid has decided in a flight of fancy at age 16, they want to be something other than what God made them. And uh, when they change their mind in a couple of years, can they put it back the way it was? For the most part, no, you can't. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. 